Let's pray. Father, we pray that your spirit would intervene in a miraculous, powerful, and magnificent way, in a way that would create in us total awareness of your presence and your power and your work. Your word is power. From your word comes your voice, your truth, your power, your beauty, your glory, and your son. And as we see your son today in your, in your Bible, in your text, in your word, pray that he would be magnified and glorified and that we would be humbled and revel in his beauty and revel in his glory, that we would be like the apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration, just bowing before the glory of Christ. So shine forth from your word in a way that makes it impossible to ignore you, and then transform our hearts and minds to know you better and to worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, it's hunting season, so I thought a hunting analogy would be an excellent uh, thing to do this morning for the sermon. Although, as I thought about that, I thought, well, the hunters who would want to hear the hunting analogy are probably gone hunting. So, whatever. For the rest of you, <laughs> it's hunting season. I'm glad you're here. Uh, when you're hunting, I learned this myself, it is all about position. Remember getting in a tree stand and being um, behind a tree because I thought the deer were coming to a particular space where I had, um, I don't know, is it legal to bait deer in Wisconsin? No? So I had accidentally dropped a bunch of deer bait out of a bag <laughs> in this particular spot that happened to be right where my, I, was, I was stationed in position to, you know, take a shot. Well, turns out the deer came from the other way, and now I'm behind the tree. I'm out of position. There's no shot. Position matters. If you want a clean, clear shot, then the position matters. If you're positioned well, you'll have that clear shot if it's an accurate shot. And with that position and with that clear shot and with that accurate shot, you will also gain a new possession, deer meat. So what's the point? The point is position begets possession. Okay? Position begets possession. And the same is true for the believer. God moves us from one position into a better position. And with that keyword here, transfer, you'll see that come up in the text. And with that transfer from one position to a better position, we also get a better possession. Okay? So that is, that is what I aim to show you in today's text one, that we have a new possession, and two, that it comes from our new position. So, we're in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So, first of all, let's start with he. Verse 13, he, that's God the Father, we'll address that more later. But there are two very important verbs in this text. The verbs are delivered and transferred. And both of these verbs are in the past tense, meaning this work is done. It can't be undone. And we see the same verbiage from Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And what he says there is, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, these words predestined, called, and justified, they're past tense verbs. And I think any believer today would say, yeah, those are all things that happened to me in the past. Uh, predestined, called, justified. I was justified years ago and I got saved. That's, the, that's what justified means. It's that moment we receive Christ, that moment when God puts the gavel to the stand and says, not guilty. And that's what we experience when we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. So all that stuff. And before we were justified, first we were called. 
right? So we hear the gospel call, someone shares the gospel with us, and we respond to the gospel, and then we are justified. So all that stuff happened in the past. All of us would admit that that happened in the past, and we're cool with that. However, there's this fourth word, glorified. None of us are glorified yet. We are all still in this sinful human flesh. Glorification is a reference to what will happen when Christ returns. Not when we die, but when Christ returns. And, he, and when he returns, we get a new resurrection body, just like he has now. And so that glorification is something we look forward to. It's our future hope. But according to Paul here, we have been glorified because he uses the verb in the past tense. Meaning our future glorification is so sure and so secure and guaranteed that Paul speaks of it as having already happened. And that is the same reality in today's text. We have already been delivered from the domain of darkness. And we can all attest to that today because of the experiences in our life, right? You could, for those of you who are saved, you could say, I don't live in the domain of darkness anymore. I have Jesus Christ. I can live a holy life now. I can choose righteousness. I can do good things for God's glory in faith, things that satisfy me and honor God. And, and we could all say that I, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness. That's a past tense thing for me. But then we get this other thing that God does, which is he transferred, past tense, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And that is something that we have yet to fully experience. It's a future hope. Yet Paul uses the same past tense to assure us of its certainty. And why is it certain? It's certain because to God, it's already done. To God, that is a completion. It's finished. I mean, God exists outside of time. To him, a thousand, day, a thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand years. Why? Because standing outside of the timeline of our reality, God can experience his moment with David, King David, and, in mo and experience his moment with us simultaneously. To us, that doesn't make sense in the timeline. How's God right now, a thousand years or three thousand years or five thousand years in the past, if He's here with me now? Because God doesn't exist inside the realm of time, but He can insert Himself within our time. And to God, our future glorification is finished. It's done. It's guaranteed. That's why He uses the past tense, because the kingdom of the beloved Son is already ours. As much as God is with you here now, experiencing this moment with you, He is also in your future quote-unquote, right now, experiencing heaven with you. To him, it's certain. It's guaranteed. It's done. It's already happened. And to us, in our experience, it hasn't. So we are not going to be delivered and transferred. Rather, we have already been delivered and transferred. And now, that is what God has done, but to what end? Like, what is our benefit? Well, if we get delivered then what do we get delivered from? We get delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. So now that we know what, God, what action God took, we can see where his action lands us. We were all born into this domain of darkness. Psalm 51.5, David says, In sin did my mother conceive me. Meaning, he was born into sin. At conception, he was a sinner. And I've said this many times. We, do not, or we are not sinners because we sinned. We sin because we are sinners. It is a condition that we enter upon conception. And the product of our condition, being born, being conceived and born into sin, is that we act out in sin. We act out of the domain of darkness in which we dwell Upon conception. Ephesians 2.1 and Colossians 2.13 both say the same thing. They say, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And we were not only spiritually dead, but we acted out our spiritual death in our daily living. Ephesians 2 goes on to say of our death and sin, In which you once walked, following the prince of the power of, of the air. So we walked in the sin, and we followed the, the, the leader of the domain of darkness, the prince of the power there, that's Satan. And, and Jesus literally says to the non-believers, you are of your father, the devil. 
That's a, that's a heavy statement to tell a non-believer that Satan is their father. Jesus said that. I don't tell people that because I'd rather tell them who could be their Lord and Savior than the fact that Satan is their father because what good is it telling someone that Satan is their father if they don't even understand who God is or really who Satan is? So we tell them the gospel truth. But this is a reality that we are following Satan because he's our father. And if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you see that he has blinded our eyes to the truth until God opens our eyes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this point is that we're not only spiritually dead without Jesus, but we acted out our spiritual death when we don't have Jesus. By, by living out our sin and following our father, Satan, who lies to us. That's who we are without Christ. Even the seemingly good things that we did when we lived in the domain of darkness were still dead works. Whether they were morally good or not, they were still dead. They did not please God because they were absent of faith in Christ. And it is also is from this place and from this condition, from this domain of darkness, that God has delivered us. And that Greek word for delivered there means rescue. So he rescued us from death. That's ultimately what it means. And upon that deliverance, he also does something else. He transfers us. He can't just deliver us and then not transfer us. He transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's heaven. That's what he's talking about. This Greek word for kingdom of the beloved son is a phrase that is used 150 times in the New Testament. And every time it's a reference to heaven. This is our current possession. This is the current possession. The possession is heaven. We get heaven. And if you read Psalm uh, 73, 25, it tells us, Whom have I in heaven but you? So the possession that we get is heaven, but the point of possessing heaven is that you get God. It's not just heaven, but it's God in heaven. Psalm 16, 11, that, that God's presence is the joy that we get in heaven. So that's what we look forward to is the presence of God in this new possession, the eternal dwelling, which also means that God himself is now our possession. Not that we own him, not that kind of possession, but that we get him. And again, this is one of those already but not yet realities. And we see this all throughout Scripture. There's a ton of already but not yet. Romans 8.30, glorification. Already, it's ours, past tense, but not yet. Okay, so in one sense, it's already done, but in another sense, in our effectual experience, it's a not yet, right? So this transaction is complete. It's already. The kingdom of the beloved son is already ours because we were transferred, past tense. The transaction is complete, but in our effectual experience, it's that not yet. But to avoid any misconception that this is something that we don't possess, that isn't sure, that isn't guaranteed, that isn't secured, God makes it clear that it is our current possession. That's how certain God is that we will inherit his kingdom with his son in his glory and the joy of his presence. That's so certain that he says it's already done, even though we don't hold it in our human hands right now. Think of it like a trust fund, sort of. Every analogy always, I think, eventually falls short when we try to create analogies about who God is and how he operates. The analogies always you know, don't really follow through to the end because God is kind of beyond the human images that we present about him. Uh, but if you think about it like a trust fund, there's this plethora of wealth waiting for you in the future. It's in your name. It's yours. It is promised to you, except unlike a trust fund, the only stipulation to receive it is that it was created in the first place. You can lose a trust fund if you don't fulfill certain stipulations, you cannot lose the kingdom of the beloved son. You cannot lose heaven. You cannot lose Christ. You cannot lose your eternal life. It is ours 
Not because we're morally good, not because of our actions, not because of our behavior, not because, of our, not because we're good enough, or because God looked, us, looked at you and said, you know, that guy is really good with money. I'm going to save him and use him as a treasure in the church. Oh, that guy's really good at speaking publicly. I'm going to save him and make him a preacher. Oh, that guy is really good at serving. I'm going to save him because this church needs a servant. God's not like, I need you on my team because I don't know what I'll do without you. Instead, he goes, none of you are good enough to serve. None of you are good enough to worship. None of you are good enough to know me. None of you are good enough to serve. None of you are, are good enough with your gifts or qualities that you have without Christ is good enough to be a part of my body, to be a part of my kingdom. And, be, and because we're not good enough, we deserve, as, as Christian told us earlier, to receive the full wrath of God. And as Francis Chan said, what Christian read for us, let that sink in. There's nothing in you that's good enough without Christ. We are moral failures. We are spiritually dead. But, if we go back to verse 12 in our text, the Father qualifies us through the Son. And suddenly, we who are not good enough, not qualified, not morally good, not gifted enough, not special enough, certainly not good enough with money for God to be like, I have to save this guy. Certainly not a good enough speaker that he has to save this guy. Paul was a terrible speaker. He admitted it over and over again throughout scripture. He's like, I am a bad speaker. I am not eloquent like the other, the, 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 the philosophers that sway you with their clever words. He goes, I don't have clever words. I have the truth. That's all I say. So that when you hear the truth and you believe, you don't go, oh, Paul's fantastic but that you would say, Jesus is fantastic. That's Paul's point. Moses, same thing. Oh, Lord, don't send me. I don't want to talk. I don't know how to talk. And he's like, I know. You don't know how to talk, but I'm going to speak through you, and I'm going to have someone else speak for you. Don't worry. I can use you however I please. So God's not looking for special qualified people. He's looking for unqualified people. That's the qualification, is that you're unqualified for heaven. And therefore, when he saves you, he becomes the qualifier, and you become qualified, and who gets the glory? You? No. Because you have brought nothing to the table. God gets the glory. And what do we get? Absolute and utter, endless, eternal joy in his wonderful presence. Uh, I'll take that trade any day. Every day. That's the hope for Christians. That's our hope. That's the excitement. So... This is really important that we understand that this qualification to go to heaven, to possess this kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the beloved son, to be brothers with Christ eternally, to be, to be friends with Christ eternally, to be subservient and submissive under the lordship of Christ forever, to call him brother, to embrace him. Oh my gosh, you guys. We're going to stand in heaven and hug Jesus Christ. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Just that, that thought just struck me. I mean, I've thought it before, but when you think about that, that's insane. Like how many times are you in despair or frustrated or, 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 or just scared or just full of fear or worried or anxious or just living in sin or just struggling or suffering or something's hard, you don't know what decision to make, and you're like, ah, Lord, what do I do? And you're like waiting for answers. And, and then your pastor tells you, well, what you should do is pray. And that's how you communicate to God and express your concerns. And then God, and then read the Bible because God communicates his truth to us through his word. And you have a conversation with God and prayer and the word. And that is exactly what God has established for the church today to have as a means to communicate with God and to receive word from God. And then there's also things in the Bible that tell you to seek counsel from people. And so we've got all these ways to kind of figure out what Jesus wants. But there's going to be a day when we're standing right in front of his face and we don't need a book anymore. We've got him, the word, in the flesh. And we're going to go, Jesus, I don't have any more questions because all my anxiety is gone. All my fear is gone. All my worry is gone. My, 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 I, don't have to, I don't even feel like crying anymore. I'm not sad. Actually, I do want to cry. I'm so happy to see you. And we're going to hug him. You guys, it's going to be amazing. That is what we get. That's the possession, the kingdom of heaven. Not just heaven, but Christ in the flesh. 
That's the hope that Paul puts forward in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, right now, it's a, it's a dim mirror. What we have is a dim mirror of what will become a real experience in the presence of the real God. That's our hope. That's our possession. Christ. The kingdom of the beloved Son. If it's just the kingdom, eh. But if it's the kingdom of the beloved Son, yeah. It's going to be awesome. I wish I had written into my sermon an even longer explanation as to how amazing this is going to be, but I didn't, so we're going to move on. Now, because of this work of God the Father, we have this new possession, the kingdom of his beloved son. And our validation to have this possession is because of our new position. So we have a possession, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the beloved son, Jesus, we have Jesus. Why? Because of our new position. In verse 13, the word he refers to God the Father. But at the end of verse 13, Paul makes a Trinitarian shift to God the Son by using these words about Jesus, his beloved Son. So the kingdom of his beloved son. And right there we find this Trinitarian shift. We've been talking about the Father this whole time. And now Paul shifts to Christ the Son, Jesus. And this transition is vitally important because this is the kickoff to the most profoundly Christ-centered and Jesus-exalting chunk of texts in the entire Bible. From this point on, through verse 23, all the he's that we find in these texts refer to Jesus. And he becomes the focal point of Paul's argument for the supremacy of Jesus as God and Savior and the absolute and assured preeminence of Jesus Christ. His absolute sovereignty, his absolute rule, his absolute reign, his absolute will, his absolute power, his absolute supremacy, his absolute kingship and lordship, that he is absolutely everything that the rest of the Bible says he is. And Paul condenses it into 10 verses that are so heavy and so weighty and so rich in the person and work of Jesus Christ that I think those 10 verses are probably going to take us 12 weeks to get through. It is my favorite chunk of Bible verses in the entire Bible. I've preached Colossians 1, 15 through 20, well, 15 through 20, but we're going to go say 15 through 23. I've preached those texts probably five times in my life because I always just like coming back to it and usually I do just like one sermon over all those texts. Now, <laughs> we to do just like one verse at a time. I'm so excited. Maybe half a verse at a time. What do you guys think? Yeah? Right? There's no limit. We, we could go on forever. We could do Colossians for like four years. You guys don't care. This is a, this is a massive pivot in this entire book. Because right here, Paul has spent all this time establishing some fundamental and foundational truths. He's got this prayer in those first few, uh, first 10 or 12 verses. Well, really, these first 14 verses. This prayer that is about uh, prayer to the Father and what the Father has done. And Christ is included there. We see a lot of Jesus at the beginning of this book and a lot of the Father. But now he kind of focuses in on what the Father's doing. And then right here, it's like, it is through the Son that the Father does all these things. And then we get this beautiful just portrait of who Christ is and what he does. So this is a very significant moment in church history. This is a very significant moment to the Colossians when they get this letter delivered to them from Paul and they're sitting in their house and there's a bunch of believers gathered for worship and they're like, all right, what word does the apostle Paul, the authority uh, from Christ himself speak? What is Jesus saying to us through Paul? And they open this letter and they read and they're like, see all these things that the Father's doing and they get to these verses and they see this pivot toward Christ and this beautiful expression of who Jesus is. And it changes the nature and trajectory of the church forever. Because of these words, 
you are who you are in Christ. Because of these words, you are here today. Because of these words, you are where you are. Not just in church, not just a believer, your job, your family, all those things. God, Jesus Christ himself, sovereignly orchestrating all the aspects of your life to fulfill his will and his plan for your life so that he would be glorified and you would be satisfied in him. So this is a very significant moment. And the kickoff into these next 10 verses of Jesus-saturated text starts here in verse 14 by saying, of the beloved Son, Jesus, verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now remember, delivered and transferred are past tense, already done by God the Father, and the result of our deliverance and transfer is that we already, but not yet, have a possession, the kingdom of his beloved Son. But in Christ, and through Christ, we not only have this possession, but we also get a new position, and our new position is redeemed. We have redemption. Notice in verse 14, Paul abandons the past tense and focuses in on the present tense. We have, not we had or we got, but we have redemption now, present tense. It's an active verb in the present tense indicating this is not just it happened in Paul's present but in the present for Paul and the church in Colossae, and because it's an active verb, it continues throughout the church or through, throughout church history forever for anyone who is redeemed. This is not like our promise of the future kingdom of the beloved son. This is not an already, but not yet. This is just already. This is who you are. You are here. We are currently redeemed it's yours and we get a clear definition of our redemption at the end of verse 14 paul defines our redemption as the forgiveness of sins so we have redemption comma the forgiveness of sins there's no conjunction there and the lack of conjunction between those two phrases indicates that the phrase the forgiveness of sins is is giving us a clear definition of that first phrase, what redemption really is. So your redemption is the forgiveness of your sins. These two things are connected. So God is forgiving our sins in Christ, and that secures our eternal position as redeemed. In order to lose our position as redeemed, we would have to be unforgiven of our sins, or, or God would have to retract his forgiveness which scripture never indicates is something that God would do or could do because in order for God to take away your forgiveness, to unforgive your sins, he would have to become unfaithful to his gospel, to his promise, to his love, to his grace, and unfaithful to his mercy. And because of 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, meaning God is faithful not just to call you, but to keep you called. And we know that this is a fellowship, a relationship, and a position in Christ that cannot be undone, cannot be removed, cannot be lost, cannot be stolen, and cannot be given back by you. God's forgiveness of our sins and his redeeming us are connected truths in Scripture. You cannot have just one or the other. They are connected. Our redemption has to include forgiveness. Our sins being washed white as snow by the blood of Christ means forgiveness and it means redemption. There is no redemption if our sins are not forgiven. So I'm going to prove that to you right here. Ephesians 1.7. Ephesians 1.7 also defines redemption as forgiveness. It says, In Him, that's Christ, we have redemption... Through his blood, comma, no conjunction, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The same phrase. Redemption, a better definition of redemption, a fuller definition of redemption is the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Okay, and then we have Matthew 26, 28, and Jesus says, this, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So let me explain what those two verses are doing together. Okay, when we build theology, 
When we build doctrine, you can't build it on one verse. Okay, I hear people tell me, well, the Bible says this one verse. And I'm like, you can't build an entire theological concept or entire doctrine on one verse. The Bible has to, the Bible explains the Bible, right? So we have to put a lot of texts together to build a theology. We have to put the entirety of the Bible together. We have to take every text in its context, understand it in its context, and relate them to each other. So we're going to do that with Ephesians 1.7 and Matthew 26.28. Jesus, in Matthew 26, identifies his blood as the means by which we are forgiven. Right? This is my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul identifies Jesus' blood as the means by which we have redemption. Okay, Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Meaning Jesus' blood, which refers to his death. Once Jesus' blood or his death is applied to us by grace, it secures both our forgiveness of sins and our eternal redemption. They're inseparable. So, all of this is a lot of theological analysis of our salvation. Ultimately, if you had to pick a word that would summarize all, these, all of this deliverance and transfer and redemption and forgiveness, if you had to pick a word that would summarize our new possession and you had to pick a word that summarized our new position, that word would be salvation. We use it all the time. We use the word salvation all the time to summarize what God has done for us through Jesus. But scripture often takes that truth of our salvation and explores it deeper for the sake of our knowledge of God and our growth in him. We talk about salvation so flippantly. We use it, and it's fine. It's okay to use it that way often, right? We just use the word salvation. And we know that salvation includes a lot more information than just this idea of being saved. We know that it includes grace and faith and the sacrifice of Christ and his perfect life and his perfection and his resistance, resisting sin when he's being tempted. We also know it includes the forgiveness of our sins and our redemption. We know it, it, it comes with eternal hope. It comes with the kingdom of the beloved son. We know it also means we've been delivered from death into life. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We know that it, we, we, we know all these things. But we don't walk up to Christians and say, have you, and then explain the entire doctrine of salvation, and then three hours later go, is that you? And they go, yeah, you could have just said, are you saved? Right? <laughs> saved us a good three hours. Unless you're having a healthy, you know, vibrant, deep conversation about how cool salvation is, which we should have more of. But ultimately, we use this word kind of flippantly to, to describe some of these deeper doctrines. But when we go into the Bible, when we go into the text, and, there, and, and when I'm preaching the Bible, and we, we, we see these elements come out, we have to explore them for depth. And we have to explore them for depth because you have to grow. You have to grow. It's not an option for Christians. Not an option. Nowhere in the Bible is it like, eh, whatever you want to do. You don't, you don't have to know more. That never shows up. The only time the Bible talks about people not knowing things and God's okay with it is when he says, they don't love me. So, for those who do love him, growth is not an option. And I, and I say this in this sense. Even if you are a Christian and you are resisting growth, it's still not an option because the Holy Spirit will work on you, period, if you're saved. He will. You can't resist his work. He will sanctify you regardless of your desire to be sanctified if you're a Christian. But I will also say this. If you are a genuine believer, how could you not want to be sanctified? I literally have never met a Christian who says, I don't want to grow. I mean, who would say that out loud? We kind of live that way a little bit sometimes. I think we all live that way. I know I have lived that way many times in my life. Even as a pastor, there have been seasons in my life where I was not growing that fast at all. Because I wasn't doing the things that, that caused growth because I didn't have a desire for growth. And then God just like kind of shook me from my apathy and awakened me to certain things and put me in a season of growth. And those seasons just kind of go like this sometimes, don't they? Growing, not growing that much. Growing, not growing that much. The reason we preach the Bible the reason we preach the gospel is not to get you saved. 
Church is not for the unsaved. De- despite the popular opinion that churches need to put on a show or put on some sort of like service that kind of like makes unbelievers come in and feel welcomed. Of course we want, if an unbeliever walks through our door, do we want them to feel welcome? Yeah, that's what Jesus would do. That's great hospitality and it's love. Of course we want those people to feel welcomed and loved. Of course we want to preach the gospel to them. But they're not the priority for me because of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says it is my responsibility, it's Brian's responsibility, and it's Christian's responsibility to equip the saints for the ministry. That's the purpose of Sunday mornings. For the word of God to be preached to your head, for the information to go into your brain, for you to process it and learn it up here. And then us trusting the Holy Spirit to turn that information into transformation in your heart. And then for that heart transformation to create in you new, better, more glorious, obedient, and righteous behavior. And from all of that, produce in you incredible joy in Jesus Christ. That's why we have church. I'm not saying we shouldn't acknowledge when an unbeliever comes in. I'm not saying we shouldn't make things comfortable for them. But, and we should because the reality is if an unbeliever walks in, we should give them every comfort they need because when we start preaching the gospel, they're going to get very uncomfortable. They should at least. I mean, that's our hope, right? That they would become uncomfortable. So my point is that Sunday mornings is not a consumption time, okay? You are consuming right now the word of God. So there is this consumption, but that's not our priority. Our priority is giving worship. And my priority is giving to you the word of God. And your responsibility is to receive. So... When we talk about this text, when we talk about these verses, when we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we look at the forgiveness of our sins and the redemption and how God has pulled us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, we think about those realities and we explore them deeper. This is not just about you guys going, oh yeah, the gospel, yeah, I don't know, I'm forgiven, whatever, I'm just transferring. This is about receiving a deeper concept of how the gospel works and so that the better we understand the gospel, the more we cherish it, the more we worship him, the more we love him, the more we cling to him, the more we desire him, the more we pursue him, the better we obey him, the more we hate sin, the more we love righteousness, the more we serve each other, the more we give, the more we sacrifice, the more we, the more we submit to one another, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, submitting to one another in Christ. All of that is a product of a beautiful gospel. And, and, and just to have the surface definition of the gospel isn't enough. If that was enough, we wouldn't have these words in a letter written to you. We have it for you. And it's here. So we read it and preach it because it's meaningful and it's supposed to be there and you're supposed to hear it and it's supposed to change you and it's only going to change you if the Holy Spirit causes the change in you. And I do believe that you have a responsibility in that change to receive it, to hear it, to ask the Holy Spirit, transform me. Some of us are here this morning and we are here because it's church and you're supposed to be here. And some of us are here because it's church and we love Jesus and we love his church. And some of us are here for maybe reasons in between that. But you know what? All of us are here because the Holy Spirit brought you here. And he brought you here to hear this gospel message. He brought you here to hear the, just a little bit of a deeper understanding of the gospel. And I think you already knew this. I think you already knew you were dead in your sins and now you are alive in Christ. And brought from the domain of darkness into a new position, which is the kingdom of heaven, which is yours now, but is a future possession. I think you already knew that. I think you already knew that you are called redeemed. I think you already knew that you are forgiven. But what I don't think we know is how that changes our lives. Because 
Now, I could stop right here and say, because of the way I see you live your life, but I'm not going to say that. I say it because of the way I live mine. You have any idea, this isn't about me, but do you have any idea how hard it is to look at the Bible, which is the perfect word of God that describes exactly what you should and shouldn't do, exactly what you should and shouldn't know, how you should know it, what you should do with it, and what your life should look like if you understand it. The depths of God, the beauty of the gospel, the explanation, our obedience, righteousness, how we perceive sin in ourselves and our relationship in creation to God and all these things. I read all these things and then I write sermons on pieces of paper and I come up here and I say all these words to you and I sit in my office and I'm like, I should go to hell. <laughs> like, I deserve hell. <laughs> That's who I am. Like, I'm so aware of my sin. I, I went, this is the first time I've preached since I got back from my retreat and I am so thankful, thank you Lord Jesus, that Brian preached last week. I went to a Packers game. My wife has been begging me to go to a Packers game for 15 years and every year I go, nope, we are a pastor's family, we go to church, we're never going to a Sunday's Packers game, get over it. What about Monday night? Those tickets are like $10,000. Nope, Not an option. Not when you're a pastor. Not when you're a pastor family. You don't get to go to a Packers game. Finally, after 15 years, we made it happen. Brian preached. I went to a Packers game. Now, I'll probably never do that again, so I'm glad I got to do it once. And I am more than thankful to God that he had sovereignly orchestrated me being gone on Sunday because the five days, the six days before Sunday, I went on a pastoral retreat by myself. And as that retreat ended, I sat in my room and I was like, I cannot preach this weekend. <laughs> There's no way I could bring this human sack of garbage and bones and flesh to a pulpit and declare the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the goodness of God out of this disgusting, putrid mouth that reveals the wickedness of my heart. That's how I felt as God just started tearing at my soul and going, Mark, you're not as good as you think think we have some chiseling to do in your life and I was like yeah cool sweet Jesus let's do it yeah retreat time baby I'll bring my bible and some books my pen and some notepad I'll journal away I'll be like oh Jesus is doing great things with me I love it and he starts doing it and I'm like oh this hurts chiseling hurts I remember you guys remember skit guys do you know who skit guys are? Dude, they're awesome for like, as a youth pastor for 10 years, I use them all the time. Because they had so many great skits. They had this one skit where one of the guys is God and the other guy is just a human. And, and the guy's got a, a chisel and a hammer and he's just walking around going chip, 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 chip and chiseling away at his body. And he's like, oh, that hurts. He's like, well, yeah, it's going to hurt. Of course it's going to hurt. Change is going to hurt. I've got to chip this off of you. And I'm always, and I'm sitting, I have preached that to kids for years. Oh, it's going to hurt when God disciplines you and chisels you. And then I go on this retreat and God's like, yeah, it's going to hurt. And I'm like, what? I, but I don't want it to hurt. <laughs> this hurts. I don't want it to hurt. He's like, dude, have you not preached Hebrews 12 for 15 years to people? I'm doing this because I love you. Mark, you're not a sack of garbage and human garbage and a bag of bones that spits out putrid, disgusting truths from your wicked, nasty heart. I have changed that. That's not who we are anymore. But I needed to feel that. I needed to hear that to grow. I never want you to walk out of church feeling like you are a sack of garbage. But Paul is very clear in Philippians chapter 3 that everything we do 
without Christ and before Christ, particularly, was rubbish. But now in Christ, we're something new. We're something better. This gospel is not just, oh, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, rose from the grave and forgives me my sins. If I trust in him with faith, then I'm saved. Yay. Now I can go to church. Now I can be righteous. Now I can just kind of basically live the same life I've always lived, but with a few extra steps. I go to church. I get involved. I pray and read my Bible sometimes. It's not really transforming my life significantly, but I'm involved, you know, doing some things. That's what we call like nominal Christianity. That is not going to create satisfaction in your life. It's just not. Husbands, you ever kiss your wife? I hope so. I didn't hear any amens. Wives, have you ever been kissed by your husbands? (laughs) You ever just like, I have not thought this one through. I'm going to do it anyways. All right. <laughs> you ever just go up to your wife and just, like, this is happening to me, and just kind of, like, give her a peck, like, just kiss, and she's like, what? do you even love me? What was that? Just kind of, like, half-hearted kiss. But have you ever gone up to your wife and grabbed her by the face and been like, baby, I love you? And you just, mm, ah, just one of those big, heavy, wet, juicy kisses. Okay, my kids walk in on those all the time and they go, oh, come on, every time. That's the difference between nominal Christianity and genuine Christianity. Real Jesus-loving people who want to kiss the Son, who want to love the Lord, who want to live their lives for Him. That's what the gospel gives you. We don't dive deeper into the gospel so that you can go, yeah, I know, I'm saved, but that you will go, this is heavy, Who am I without Christ? I am in the domain of darkness. I deserve hell. I'm a bag of garbage. I'm not saying that unbelievers are bags of garbage because God doesn't create garbage. God creates people in his image, but that image is ruined by sin, and we are born into the image of Adam instead. And because of Romans 5, we see that Christ becomes the new image that we get. Let's live like it nominal, kind of like half-hearted Christianity that's just kind of filled with Christian duty, but the heart's not there, that's, that's just not enough. And I don't just mean like, hey, you have to because God demands it, or hey, you have to because the church needs you, or hey, you have to, this is why. This is why you have to. Your joy depends on it. And I love you. I love you. I, I'm your shepherd. God called me to love you. Even if I didn't want to love you, I have to love you. (laughs) But I do willfully and joyfully love you. And because I do, I want nothing more than your joy. Your children come to you and something bad happened in school and they say, oh, this guy picked on me and they're all sad. Are you like, suck it up, wuss? Life's rough, get over it. I told the kid that once. <laughs> His dad, not a fan. <laughs> but what do you do when your kid comes, oh, I was picked out, I'm so sad. Something bad happened. You're like, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. You embrace your child. Like, you are not who they say you are. You tell them, this is who you are in Christ. Why do you do that to your kid? Because you love them. Do you want them to be in despair? No, you want them to be happy. Do you want them to be anxious? No, you want them to feel loved. Do you want them to be worried? No, you want them to feel secure. Do you want them to be be in fear all the time, trembling at every corner? Like, what's going to happen in my life? No, you want to show them that God is in control of your life, that he is sovereignly working a plan through you. Do you want them to to, to just never grow up and just be 12-year-olds for the rest of their life? No, you want them to be chiseled. You want them to be broken so that they can grow, just like Hebrews 12 says, that just like your heavenly father disciplines you, he does it out of love. That's what we do as dads and as moms for our kids because we love them and we know that the product will be righteousness. And in that righteousness, they will have joy. That's why we, that's why we treat our children the way we do. And God does the same for us. And I want the same for you. Righteousness and joy. That's my desire for you. I'm not telling you to live a life that is so gospel-saturated that it's the 
only thing you can think of and do for the rest of your life. I am tell- and I'm not saying that just so that you do it out of duty. I am saying I want you to live a gospel-centered, Christ-saturated, spirit-filled, God-glorifying, word-centered life for the rest of your life, for every moment of your life. Because I know this God in this Bible who says that is to your benefit. And when we do it, he will work on us and he will chisel us and he will break us. And Paul, uh, David says in Psalm 51.5 or Psalm 50, I don't know what the number of verses, but it's in Psalm 51. And he says in there that God doesn't desire sacrifices of, of like like animals and offerings, what God desires is the sacrifice of brokenness, a, a humble and contrite heart. That's what God wants. So give it to him and let him work. It will hurt, but you will grow. And the result, and listen to me, church, I promise, I promise you, it will result in joy. Let's pray. You're too good to us, Lord. You're too good to us. We don't deserve it. But then you give us Christ and you show us, yeah, yeah, we don't deserve it, but man, do we love it. And oh, do you love us? Oh, do you love us? You love us so much. Your love is steadfast. It does not die. Your love never ends. It never ends. It's so deep. It is so wide. It is wider than the width of our sin. It is deeper than the depths of our sin. It is longer than the stretch of our sin. It is better than our wickedness. It is so good. Your love is so good. It fixes us and makes us like you. Give us the joy of being in that love and then produce in us lives filled with joy and righteousness and the pursuit of happiness in Christ and the pursuit of righteousness in Christ. We trust you with our lives, Lord. Do it for me, please, because God, I love these people and I love to see them grow and I love to see and hear their testimonies of you at work. Give us testimonies, Lord. Give us great testimonies of your good work and your good people, the people that you've made good. Do the work in that. Do the work in them. Do it it for me, please, because I love them. Do it for you, please, because you love them. Do it for them because they love each other. We want to grow real growth, God, real growth, heart growth, life change. Give us that. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. amen. I hope you guys have a wonderful and happy Thanksgiving.